0: be really informed you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood consider this a new podcast from npr and wnyc helps you make sense of the day subscribe to consider this wherever you get your podcasts this is the new yorker fiction podcast from the new yorker magazine i'm Deborah treisman fiction editor at the new yorker each month we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss this month we're going to hear Ibn Hakan al bukhari Dead in His Labyrinth, by Jorge Luis Borges, translated from the Spanish by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni in collaboration with the author. It was published in The New Yorker in April of 1970.
1: Weary of a world that lacked the dignity of danger, the two friends set great value on these far reaches of Cornwall.
0: The story was chosen by Orhan Pamuk, who is the author of 10 novels, including The Red-Haired Woman and the Museum of Innocence. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2006. Hi, Orhan. Hi, Deborah. So the last time you were on this podcast, you read a piece by Vladimir Nabokov. And this time you were quite sure that you wanted to read Borges. So I'm wondering what uh, Borges has meant for you. In your um, reading and writing. Let life. me put it
1: this way: the greatest novelists are Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Proust, and Thomas Mann. Then the Calvino, the Borges and Novako comes for me. The greats were the great masters of nineteenth century fiction, great composers of big, moving, deep novels, especially Borges and Calvino deconstructed what they achieved. Um, uh, I like it when sometimes Borges says, well, um, uh, Henry James would write 700 pages of a novel about this. Let me tell you this in a brief story. And, and this is why one is attracted by Borges. And this, is, this story has all that aspects of Borgesian world that I like.
0: But you yourself write novels. You don't write short fiction.
1: Borges taught me to see the backbone of the story. Um, Borges' stories taught me to look at fiction as a way of um, thinking about fiction. Also, Borges prepared me uh, for my so-called postmodernism.
0: <laughs> so, do you feel that you you look at the sort of five-page backbone and then thread it through the five hundred-page novel? Is that
1: when Borges was cracking these jokes about <laughs> Henry James? I think he was missing something. A novel is not its backbone. A novel is not its um, structure. A novel also gives us a texture, which Borges, being a short story writer, was not very much interested. But because he was not interested in the texture of the things, he taught us. All of us, uh, fiction writers, to think about the structure. And once you begin to uh, think about structure, uh, with the help of Borges, we all begin to do a bit acrobatics with our backbone. <laughs> and so, uh, Calvino, Borges, and Novaco paid way to a new inventive way of writing fiction. And this story is one of these essential stories that is about this story. Um, And there are two characters who are talking about two characters 25 years ago. And they, in in a way, mirror each other. The stories and characters mirror each other. These are things that I like. Or perhaps (laughs) these are things that I learned from Borges and begin to like after him.
0: (laughs) So this is one one of three stories that Borges wrote. Um, three detective stories, he called them, mystery stories that he wrote in response to Edgar Allan Poe or in homage to, to Poe. Do you feel that they're written in a different style than than the other stories by Boris? Yeah.
1: And he alludes to the, the locked room mystery, for example, uh, than Poe's Perlund uh, letter. Uh, here, it's not the style really, but making the logic or even metaphysic of detective story, um, part of the story is interesting. That is his invention. Here, in a way, um, we see Borges learning a lot from Edgar Allan Poe, Hoffman, then adding Pirandello, Pirandello's influence. That is, he is part of the, uh, uh, the metaphysics. Before the Pirandello, writers would write about symmetries, um, ironies, as things that happen outside of themselves, as things that happen to others. While Borges invented the, uh, that he himself, Borges, is in the story, and we are never sure which one is Borges, which one is the character. And this ga- gave the reader space that has elasticity, that we, when we read Borges, in a sense, our minds are trying to form a space in which these characters can move as they move in a normal, so-called normal novel or a normal short story.
0: It is a detective story. It is a mystery. And by the end of the story, the mystery has been solved. And then you get something else, which we'll, we'll hear. But, but in the
1: end, it's so hard <laughs> to imagine in your mind's eye uh, what is the solution. Uh, um, In fact, it's not the solution as he suggests, uh, but our attempt to form this new space or new acrobatics or um, seeing the world upside down and this attempt to see the fiction upside down is Borges. We are forcing ourselves to see the world as he also wants us to see and it's a very hard thing. And in fact, we realize that This metaphysical acrobatics is the subject itself. We are doing (laughs) a lot to uh, understand it, be there.
0: Yeah. Do you think that that, uh, someone listening can solve the story before they Uh, hear the solution? It's
1: it's like reading Ulysses. You always (laughs) say, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to see everything he suggested. But one asks himself, the reader asks, himself, whether Borges also can imagine it completely. It's like philosophy. You make a logic, but to visualize that logic is even harder.
0: <laughs> well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Orhan Pamuk reading Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari, Dead in His Labyrinth by Jorge Luis Borges.
1: Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari, Dead in His Labyrinth like the spider which built itself a feeble house from the Qur'an. This said Dunraven with a sweeping gesture that did not fail to embrace the misty stars while it took in the bleak moor, the sea, the dunes, an imposing, tumble-down building that somehow suggested a stable long since fallen into disrepair. This is the land of my forebears." Anmin, his companion, drew the pipe out of his mouth and made some faint sounds of approval. It was the first summer evening of 1914. Weary of a world that lacked the dignity of danger, the two friends set great value on these far reaches of Cornwall. Dunraven Raven cultivated a dark beard and thought of himself as the author of a substantial epic which his contemporaries would barely be able to scan, and whose subject had not yet been revealed to him. Anmin had published a paper on the theory supposed to have been written by Fermat in the margin of a page of Diophantus. Both men, need it be said, were young, dreamy, and passionate. It's about a quarter of a century ago now, said Don Raven, that Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari, chief or king of, I don't know what Nilotic tribe died in the central room of this house at the hands of his cousin, Zaid. After all these years, the facts surrounding his death are still unclear. Anmin, as was expected of him, asked, why? For several reasons, was the answer. In the first place, this house is a labyrinth. In the second place, it was watched over by a slave and a lion. In the third place, a hidden treasure vanished. In the fourth place, the murderer was dead when the murder happened. In the fifth place, tired out, Anwin stopped him. Don't go on multiplying the mysteries, he said. They should be kept simple. Bear in mind, Pearl's purloined letter. Bear in mind, Zhang Will's locked room. Or made complex, replied Dunraven. Bear in mind the universe. Climbing the steep dunes, they had reached a labyrinth. It seemed to them, up close, a straight and almost endless wall of unplastered brick, barely higher than a man's head. Dunraven Raven said that the building had the shape of a circle, but so wide was this circle that its curve was almost invisible. Anvin recollected Nikolaus of Cusa to whom a straight line was the arc of an infinite circle. They walked on and on, and along about midnight discovered a narrow opening that led into a blind, unsafe passage. Raven said that inside the house were many branching ways, but that, by turning always to the left, they would reach the very center of the network in little more than an hour. Anwin assented. Their cautious footsteps resounded off the stone paved floor. The corridor branched into other, narrower corridors. The roof was very low, making the house seem to want to imprison them, and they had to walk one behind the other through the complex dark. Unwin went ahead, forced to slacken the pace because of the rough masonry and the many turns. The unseen wall flowed on by his hand endlessly. Anvin, slow in blackness, heard from his friend's lips the tale of the death of Ibn Hakan. Perhaps the oldest of my memories, Dunraven said, is the one of Ibn Hakan El Bukhari in the port of Pentrith. At his heels followed a black man with a lion. Unquestionably they were the first black man and the first lion my eyes had ever seen outside of engravings from the Bible. I was a boy then, but the beast, the color of the sun, and the man, the color of the night, impressed me, less than Ibn Hakan himself. To me, he seemed very tall. He was a man with a sallow skin, half-shut black eyes, an insolent nose, fleshy lips, a saffron-colored beard, a powerful chest, and a way of walking that was self-assured and silent. At home, I said, A king has come on a ship. Later, when the bricklayers were at work here, I broadened his title and dubbed him King of Babel. The news that this stranger would settle in Pantreat was received with welcome, but the scale and shape of his house arose disapproval and bewilderment. It was not right that a house should consist of a single room and of miles and miles of corridors. Among foreigners, such houses might be common, people said, but hardly here in England. Our rector, Mr. Alaberg, a man with out-of-the-way reading habits, exhumed an eastern story of a king whom the divinity had punished for having built a labyrinth, and he told this story from the pulpit. The very next day, Ibn Hakan paid a visit to the rectory. The circumstances of the brief interview were not known at the time, but no further sermon alluded to the sin of pride and the Moor was able to go on contract masons. Years afterward, when Ibn Hakan was dead, alibi stated to the authorities the substance of their conversation. Ibn Hakan, refusing a chair, had told him these or similar words. No man can place judgment upon what I am doing now. My sins are such that were I to invoke for hundreds upon hundreds of years the ultimate name of God, this would be powerless to set aside the least of my torments. My sins are such that were I to kill you, Reverend Alibi, with these very hands, my act would not increase even slightly the torments that infinite justice holds in store for me. There is no land on earth where my name is unknown. I am Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari, and in my day I ruled over the tribes of the desert with a rod of iron. For years and years, with the help of my cousin Zaid, I trampled them underfoot until God heard their outcry and suffered them to rebel against me. My armies were broken and put to the sword. I succeeded in escaping with the wealth I had accumulated during my reign of plunder. Zaid led me to the tomb of a holy man at the foot of the stone hill. I ordered my slave to watch the face of the desert. Zaid and I went inside with our chest of gold coins and slept utterly worn out. That night I believed that a tangle of snakes had trapped me. I woke up in horror. By my side, in the dawn, Zaid lay asleep. A spider web against my flesh had made me dream that dream. It pained me that Zaid, who was a coward, should be sleeping so restfully. I reflected that the wealth was not infinite and that Zaid might wish to claim part of it for himself. In my belt was my silver-handled dagger. I slipped it from its sheath and pierced his throat with it. In his agony, he muttered words I could not make out. I looked at him. He was dead, but fearing that he might rise up, I ordered my slave to obliterate the dead man's face with a heavy rock. Then we wandered under the sun, and one day we spied a sea. Very tall ships ploughed a course through it. I thought that a dead man would be unable to make his way over such waters, and I decided to seek other lands. The first night after we sailed, I dreamed that I killed Zaid. Everything was exactly the same, but this time I understood his words. He said, As you now kill me, I shall one day kill you, wherever you may hide. I have sworn to avert that threat. I shall bury myself in the heart of a labyrinth, so that Zaid's ghost will lose its way. After having said this, he went away. Al-Abid did his best to think that the Moor was mad and that his absurd labyrinth was a symbol and a clear mark of his madness. Then he reflected that this explanation agreed with the extravagant building and with the extravagant story, but not with the strong impression left by the man Ibn Hakan. Who knew whether such tales might not be common in the sand wastes of Egypt? Who knew whether such queer things corresponded, like Pliny's dragons, less to a person than to a culture? On a visit to London, alibi combed back numbers of the times. He verified the fact of the uprising and of the subsequent downfall of al-Bukhari and of his vizier, whose cowardice was well known. El-Bukhari, as soon as the bricklayers had finished, installed himself in the center of labyrinth. He was not seen again in the town. At times, Alibi feared that Zaib had caught up with the king and killed him. At night, the wind carried to us the growling of the lion and the sheep in their pens pressed together with an ancient fear. It was customary for ships from eastern ports bound for Cardiff or Bristol to anchor in the little bay. The slave used to go down from the labyrinth, which at that time, I remember, was not its present rose color, but was crimson, and exchange guttural sounding words with the ship's crews, and he seemed to be looking among the men for the vizier's ghost. It was no secret that these vessels carried cargoes of contraband, and if of alcohol or, or of forbidden ivories, why not of dead men as well? Some three years after the house was finished, the Rose of Sharon anchored one October morning just under the bluffs. I was not among those who saw this sailing ship, and perhaps the image of it I hold in my mind is influenced by forgotten prints of Abu Bekir, or of Trafalgar, but I believe it was among that class of ships so minutely detailed that they seem less the work of a shipbuilder than of a carpenter, and less of a carpenter than of a cabinetmaker. It was if not in reality, at least in my dreams, polished, dark, fast, and silent, and his crew was made up of Arabs and Malayans. It anchored at down, and in the late afternoon of that same day, Ibn Hakan burst into the rectory to see Alabi. He was dominated, completely dominated, by a passion of fear, and was scarcely able to make it clear that Zaid had entered the labyrinth and that his slave and his lion had already been killed. He asked in all seriousness whether the authorities might be able to help him. Before Alabi could say a word, Al Bukhari was gone, as if torn away by the same terror that had brought him for the second and last time to the rectory. Alone in his library, Alabi reflected in amazement that this fear ridden man had kept down Sudanese tribes by the knife, knew what a battle was, and knew what it was to kill. Alabi found out the next day that the boat had already set sail, bound for Red Sea port of Suakin. he later learned. Feeling it was his duty to verify the death of the slave, he made his way up to the labyrinth. Al-Bukhari's breathless tale seemed to him utterly fantastic. But at one turn of the corridor he came upon the lion, and the lion was dead, and at another turn there was the slave, who was also dead, and in the central room he found el-Bukhari with his face obliterated. At the man's feet was a small chest inlaid with mother-of-pearl. The lock had been forced, and not a single coin was left. Dunraven's final sentences, underlined by rhetorical poses, were meant to be impressive. Unwin guessed that his friend had gone over them many times before, always with the same confidence and with the same flatness of effect. He asked, in order to feign interest, how were the lion and the slave killed? The relentless voice went on with a kind of gloomy satisfaction. Their faces were also bashed in. A muffled sound of rain was now added to the sound of the men's steps. Anwin realized that they would have to spend the night in the labyrinth, in the central chamber, but that in time this uncomfortable experience could be looked back on as an adventure. He kept silent. Dunraven could not restrain himself and ask in the manner of one who wants to squeeze the last drop, can this story be explained? Unwin answered, as though thinking aloud, I have no idea whether it can be explained or not. I only know it's a lie. Then Raven broke out in the torrent of strongly flavored language and said that all the population of Pantreet could bear witness to the truth of what he had told and that if he had to make up a story, he was a writer, after all, and could easily have invented a far better one. No less astonished than Dunraven, Raven, Unwin apologized. Time in the darkness seemed more drawn out. Both men began to fear they had gone astray and were feeling their tiredness when a faint gleam of light from overhead revealed the lower steps of a narrow staircase. They climbed up and came to a round room that lay in ruin. Two things were left that attested to the fear of the ill-starred king. A slit of a window that looked out onto the moors and the sea, and a trapdoor in the floor that opened above the curve of the stairway. The room, though spacious, had about it something of a prison cell. Less because of the rain than because of a wish to have a ready anecdote for friends, the two men spent the night in the labyrinth. The mathematician slept soundly. Not so the poet, who was hounded by verses that his judgment knew to be worthless. Faceless the sultry and overpowering lion, faceless the stricken slave, faceless the king. Anwin felt that the story of Al-Bukhari's death had left him indifferent, but he woke up with the conviction of having unraveled it. All that day, he was preoccupied and unsociable, trying to fit the pieces of the puzzle together, and two nights later, he met Dunraven Raven in a pub back in London and said to him these or similar words. In Cornwall, I said your story was a lie. The facts were true, or could be thought of as true, but told the way you told them, they were obviously lies. I will begin with the greatest lie of all, with the unbelievable labyrinth. A fugitive does not hide himself in a maze. He does not build himself a labyrinth on a bluff overlooking the sea, a crimson labyrinth that can be sighted from afar by any ship's crew he has no need to erect a labyrinth when the whole world already is one. For anyone who really wants to hide away, London is a better labyrinth than a lookout tower to which all the corridors of a building lead. The simple observation I have just propounded to you came to me the night before last while we were listening to the rain on the roof and were waiting for sleep to fall upon us. Under its influence, I choose to put aside your absurdities and to think about something sensible. About the theory of series, say, or about a fourth dimension of space, asked Don Raven. No, said Unwin Sirius. I thought about the labyrinth of Crete, the labyrinth whose center was a man with the head of a bull. Don Raven, steep in detective stories, thought that the solution of a mystery is always less impressive than the mystery itself. Mystery has something of the supernatural about it and even of the divine. Its solution, however, is always tainted by sleight of hand. He said to put off the inevitable. On coins and in sculpture, the minateur has a bull's head. Dante imagined it as having the body of a bull and a man's head. That version also fits my solution, Anwin agreed. What matters is that both the dwelling and the dweller be monstrous. The minotaur amply justifies its maze. The same can hardly be said of a threat uttered in a dream. The minotaur's image once evoked, unavoidably, of course, in a mystery in which there is a labyrinth. The problem was virtually solved. Nonetheless, I confess I did not fully understand that this ancient image held the key, but in your story, I found a detail I could use, the spider web. The spider web, repeated Dunraven, Raven, baffled. Yes, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the spider web, the platonic spider web, let's keep this straight, may have suggested to the murderer, for there is a murderer, his crime. You remember that Al Bukhari in the tomb dreamed about a tangle of snakes, and upon waking, found that a spider web had prompted his dream. Let us go back to that night in which Al Bukhari had that dream. The defeated king and the vizier and the slave are escaping over the desert with treasure. They take shelter for the night in a tomb. The vizier, whom we know to be a coward, sleeps. The king, whom we know to be a brave man, does not sleep. In order not to share the treasure, the king knifes the vizier. Several nights later, the vizier's ghost threatens the king in a dream. All this is unconvincing. To my understanding, the events took place in another way. That night... The king, the brave man, slept, and Zaid, the coward, lay awake. To sleep is to forget all things, and this particular forgetfulness is not easy when you know you are being hunted down with drawn swords. Zaid, greedy, bent over the sleeping figure of his king. He thought about killing him. Maybe he even played with his dagger, but he did not dare. He woke a napping slave, they buried part of the treasure in the tomb, and they fled to Swaking and to England. Not to hide themselves from al-Bukhari, but to lure him and to kill him, they built, like the spider its web, the crimson labyrinth on the high dunes in sight of the sea. The vizier knew that ships would carry to Nubian ports the tale of the red-bearded man, of the sleigh, and of the lion, and that sooner or later al-Bukhari would come in search of them in their labyrinth. In the last passageway of the maze, the trap lay waiting. Al-Bukhari had always underrated Zaid, and now did not lower himself to take the slightest precaution. At last, the wished-for day came. Ibn Hakan landed in England, went directly to the door of the maze, made his way into its blind corridors and perhaps had already set foot on the first steps when his vizier killed him. I don't know whether with a bullet from the strap door in the ceiling. The slave would finish off the lion and another bullet would finish off the slave. Then Zaid crushed the three faces with a rock. He had to do it that way. One dead man with his face bashed in would have suggested a problem of identity, but the beast, the black man, and the king formed a series, and given the first two terms, the last one would seem natural. It is not to be wondered at what he was driven by fear when he spoke to Alibi. He had just finished his awful job and was about to flee England and unearth the treasure. A thoughtful silence or displeed followed Unwin's words. Dunraven asked for another tankard before giving his judgment. I admit, he said, that my Ibn Hakan could have been Zaid. Such metamorphoses are classic rules of the game, are accepted conventions demanded by the reader. What I am unwilling to admit is your conjecture that a part of the treasure remained in the Sudan. Remember that Zaid fled from the king and from the king's enemies, both. It is easier to picture him stealing the whole hoard than taking the time to bury a portion of it. At the very end, perhaps no coins were found in the chest because no coins were left. The bricklayers would have eaten up a fortune that, unlike the red gold of the Nibelungs, was not inexhaustible. And so we have Ibn Hakan crossing the seas in order to recover a treasury already squandered. I shouldn't say squandered, Anwin said. The vizier invested it, putting together on an island of infidels, a great circular trap made of brink and destined not only to lure a king but to be his grave. Zaid, if your guess is correct, acted out of hate and fear and not out of greed. He stole the treasure and only later found that he was really after something else. He really wanted to see Ibn Hakan dead. He pretended to be Ibn Hakan. He killed Ibn Hakan, and in the end he became Ibn Hakan. Yes, agreed Don Raven, he was a good-for-nothing who, before becoming and nobody in debt wanted one day to look back on having been a king or having been taken for a king. The two kings and their two labyrinths. This is the story the Reverend Alabi told from the pulpit. Chronicles worthy of trust have recorded, but only Allah is all-knowing that in former times there was a king of the islands of Babylon who called together his architects and his wizards and set them to build him a labyrinth so intricate that no wise man would dare enter inside, and so subtle that those who did would lose their way. This undertaking was a blasphemy, for confusion and marvels belonged to God alone and not to men. With the passage of time there came to his court a king of the Arabs and a king of Babylon, Wishing to mock his guest's simplicity, allowed him to set foot in his labyrinth, where he wandered in humiliation and bewilderment until the coming of night. It was then that the second king implored the help of God, and soon after came upon the door. He suffered his lips to utter no complaint, but he told the king of Babylon that he too had a labyrinth in his land, and that God willing he would one day take pleasure in showing it to his host. Then he returned to Arabia, gathered his captains and his armies, and overran the realms of Babylon with so fair a fortune that he ravaged its castles, broke its peoples, and took captive the king himself. He bound him unto a swift camel and brought him into the desert. Three days they rode, and then the captor said, O king of time and crown of the century, in Babylon you lured me into a labyrinth of brass cluttered with many stairways, doors, and walls. Now the Almighty had brought it to pass that I show you mine, which has no stairways to climb, nor doors to force, nor unending galleries to wear one down, nor walls to block one's way. He then loosened the bonds of the first king and left him in the heart of the desert to die of thirst and hunger. Glory be to the living who dieth not.
0: That was Orhan Pamuk reading Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari Dead in His Labyrinth by Jorge Luis Borges, translated from the Spanish by Norman Thomas Di Giovanni in collaboration with the author. The story was published in The New Yorker in April of 1970 and appears in several collections, including The Aleph and Other Stories, published by Penguin Classics in 2004, and Collected Fictions, published by Viking in 1998. The New Yorker Festival is back, and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com festival. Again, that's newyorker.com festival. See you there. So... Orhan Borges, I, I can't remember now where I found it, but he wrote a commentary on this story in which he warned readers not to take it too seriously. He says, When I wrote Ibn Hakan, however, it became a cross between a permissible detective story and a caricature of one. The more I worked on it, the more hopeless the plot seemed and the stronger my need to parody. What I ended up with, I hope, will be read for its humor. I certainly can't expect anyone to take seriously... Or to look for symbols in such pictorial whims as a black slave, a lion in Cornwall, a red-haired While king. While he
1: also inserts the word symbol in the story, which I was surprised. <laughs> he said the Moor was mad and that his absurd labyrinth was a symbol. And what was a symbol of? He doesn't let us know which. what is a, is a symbol of. It is a symbol of. His madness. Mm -hmm.
0: So, he tells us not to look for symbols, not to take these things as symbols, to read the story for its humor. What do you think?
1: I think Borges had already invented himself, and he had done so much. Now he is at the zenith of his fame and, in a way, is a bit repeating himself, doing a pastiche of Borges. And I also like that this old-fashioned, partly Orientalist, Uh, imagery of Arabia, Ibn Hakan al-Bukhari, then there is is, uh, Sudan, especially uh, at those years, Sudan was scary for the British because there was a a Muslim uh, uh, Mahdi of Sudan. He is really, in a very professional way, addressing all the things that the reader um, uh, would be Interested in, but on the other hand, is not doing uh, this in an old-fashioned story. Uh, he is also uh, knows that he invented something that, that he can use this old-fashioned orientalist imagery uh, and inter, uh, and combine it with what he discovered. He is self-conscious about this, discovering that Bolgesian labyrinth, making stories part of the texture of the story.
0: Why was Borges so obsessed with labyrinths?
1: I don't know. Uh, and probably he was sick and tired of writers who are entering the labyrinth and then showing us something, telling, giving us a message. And he was saying, my message is not what you find and at the, and in that small room at the labyrinth. The message is walking and getting lost in the labyrinth. And in the end, that's why he also says, in this story, uh, that a detective story, a mystery story, uh, the solution is less impressive or what we find in the final room is less impressive uh, than the labyrinth itself.
0: Right. So uh, at the same time, is this a real labyrinth? You know, it's on a hill in Cornwall. Its corridors go for miles and miles. It must be absolutely enormous, unbuildable.
1: Um, um, Interesting thing about writing fiction is that you know that you're addressing the imagination of the reader. Here, Borges is asking to, re- to the readers, his readers, to visualize an architecture as something almost impossible to visualize. Then, as a writer, I also understand that sometimes when he says labyrinth, labyrinth is only a word. Sometimes, as he takes us Inside the labyrinth, now the ceilings are low, it's dark, it's a sensual thing. But we can say that in these short stories, the formula of Borges is to combine the concepts which we it's so hard to visualize uh, with um, things that we want we can visualize. And borgesian story has always things that are hard to see in our mind's eye, and and they are floating like concepts. Uh, they are floating <laughs> concepts intertwined with normal cups of water, normal tables, normal countries in England, Africa, Sudan. They are there, but then there are things that we cannot visualize, uh, and but that. Lends us a sense of a different writer. Borges invented a world which is different than any other writers. It is mostly a world that is not familiar, but a world that contains all the stories, makes us think about philosophy, make us think uh, what happens to us when we read a fiction, make us think about the. Um, The backbones of stories, and what those backbones, those structures um, imply, those models of stories imply philosophies. This is what is most interesting about Borges.
0: Well, so let's go back to these two characters, Dunraven and Unwin. Mm -hmm. One is a one is a writer, a poet who wants to write an epic. The other one is a mathematician, and one of them, the writer, tells us the story, and the mathematician solves it as though it were a mathematical problem. Why do you think he chose that, uh, that opposition between these two?
1: There is also a, a Sherlock Holmes and Watson in this story, <laughs> That uh, um, and, and then they have metamorphosed into a writer and a mathematician, uh, that we need two things, A. A description, B, a metaphysics or logic. And Borges, when he talked about Henry James, my God, Henry James is all description. <laughs> or uh, Borges wants to be all metaphysics and acrobatics and form. Um, so these two signs now, these two desires now, I identified with the mathematician and the storyteller. The storyteller has only, it seems in the story, lists, details, endless universe, while the mathematician has a formula for everything, <laughs> a formula for the world. So the effort is to combine these two. Uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes gave this, uh, put the detective story the person who solves the detective story on a pedestal, helped by uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who he refers here, but the hidden influence also partly here is Sherlock Holmes, because you know they have a distance to the uh, act, and there are two minds: one is a bit naive, and the other is very penetrating and intelligent, and sees the metaphysics, and we are all happy that they are chatting.
0: <laughs> Don Raven, you know, he knows the story from his boyhood. He first, he saw these people. Yes. He was v- amazed to see a lion, to see a black but man. But Deborah, you know? <laughs> you're reading this
1: story like a novel now. I, I don't... That's uh, how
0: Don Raven reads it. Yes.
1: And I don't, for example, if I read this story in my uh, uh, class, I don't want my students see the story through the character's eyes. While when we read Tolstoy... We want the students to see Anna Karolina, uh, uh, to see the events from other person's point of view. This is the enjoyment of a novel. But here, let's not do it. This is something else. <laughs> let's not read this story as a long novel. And in fact, this story does not give the joys Tolstoy or Henry James is giving it is, after a while, making us feel a bit, yes, very cerebral, very dense, yes, very Borgesian, but we are a bit lost. We are trying to grab something more strongly sensual. But we don't go to Borges to read sensual stories about what is interesting here his strength, his determination to write a story about stories, lost stories, and the characters. In a way, mirroring the ambiguities, strengths, um, the uh, scary parts, mysterious parts, romantic parts of the story.
0: Well, Don Raven is very frustrated to be confronted with Unwin's Borgesian solutions. He wants him to appreciate the exoticism of this story. Yes, (laughs) and
1: it's always like that in Borges. He said essential, endless uh, details and and a logic that wants to uh, contain
0: it. And how does this uh, Reverend Alibi come into this? Very strange. This um, um, reverend in a small town in Cornwall who looks up I Eastern s- stories and reads them in church.
1: The narrator tells us that he reads strange books or... or you know, Eastern
0: Eastern literature. Least, um, yeah.
1: Then I think he, he wanted to balance these two um, um, characters He probably wanted to retell the story a third time, making sure that we get the message that uh, you can pull out a story like a glow and show another aspect of it. And Borges is good at that.
0: So what do you think that story is doing appended to the end of this one?
1: I didn't really understand that.
0: He he wrote it separately. He wrote it first. Uh And and even he said – you know that i had a quote from him where he says i he has no idea how it found its way into the story as a mystery to him so he just felt that's that had to be tacked on to the ending and it's another i should modestly
1: tell that i don't know uh, uh, why <laughs> and it's good that sometimes there are things in a novel in a story that things we know that we cannot understand or not that it's very hard to understand we also i, I also think that um, Yes, it's a a retake, a a third take on the uh, story that he plays around, and that's it. But I need more information to understand why it is there. But Joy of Reading Fiction is like, (laughs) is this, that in the end you don't understand everything, that you let the story go, and there is a dark side in it that you don't understand. But on the other hand, one part of you is saying, you're not missing much. This is enough, something like that. (laughs) And and Borges always gives you that feeling. You cannot exhaust the possible, infinite possible interpretations. The fact that we're talking about it, the fact that it's about stories and turning around stories like globes inside out, outside in, and the possibility of continuing like that. I took the third story like that, that there's uh, infinite possibilities of retelling the story or reinterpreting it. This is how I took it, but maybe I'm mistaken.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps a suggestion that, that a labyrinth doesn't have to be a physical structure. Yes. That it can be just a mental wasteland.
1: But our sense of labyrinth is endlessly intertwined with our sense of Borges. I cannot think of an intellectual in the last 50 years... Who would think of a labyrinth and would not remember Borges? Um, um, Borges uh, uh, made labyrinth so popular.
0: There's something uh, interesting at the very beginning of the story where he sets it, Borges sets it on the first summer evening of 1914. And he has a line about, you know, these, these young men are bored because their time lacks the dignity of danger. So this is a month before the start of World War I.
1: These are sly ironies Borges <laughs> makes, of course. I also like it when he says, both men needed to be said were young, dreamy and passionate. Borges loves to um, dramatize the passionate, dreamy youngster who's thinking about metaphysics and loves even more to dismiss this person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you think there's the implication that these two are going to be sent off to war in a a few months?
1: I don't know. Uh, Maybe. It's uh, such a sly thing to uh, plant. uh, uh, From 1880 to 1930s, whatever happened in those 50s were the most important things for Borges. Uh (laughs) The authors that were famous around those years, then events, First World War, Second World War was not that important for Borges. It was always First World War. Uh, in the end, it's like this famous story that once they asked a French guy, "Which French king you like?" And he said, "Some king." And why do you?" "Oh, wow, It's not important. But I was young then," this person said. So Borges was young before the First World War and then uh, the enthusiasm to go to that war. Um, it was a war of patriotism and machine guns. Uh, maybe he was not a, a radical critic of social structures that led to war, but he had a sense of its stupidity, uh, a sense of its narrowness.
0: And he was writing this. He, he wrote this story in, I think, in late 1949 or so. It was published in Spanish in '51. So that's after the Second World War. So he's coming, he's coming out of, you know, 30 years of, of at least European crisis and disaster. And he writes this sort of funny story about, well, maybe not so funny, but about <laughs> an exotic you, figure turning up on the coast of Cornwall with his lion and his slave.
1: Yeah, yes, if you look at it that way. Say, around that time, Graham Greene was going to Africa, to Cuba, writing very social novels, and Borges was doing this old-fashioned thing. But Borges was, on the other hand, was, in the end, writing like Borges. Borges was already famous, and everyone wanted him to be a Borges, not a Graham Greene. So I uh, accepted that I don't find him a political or not interested in drama of the times. In fact, this is, they asked him, he was successful at this age, not in 50s, actually, but when he published this in New Yorker. In 50s, he was writing one of his classic stories. He was writing like Borges and for him, this was essential that he did not like write Graham Greene, supplying with local color, disorder, local politics, local color. Um, he was busy with something else in trying to invent something,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's timeless. Yes, mm-hmm. that's, that's by by definition. He was he was not pinned to something. There's an interesting line actually in the story. I noticed. Uh, where the the two men meet in the pub in London, and Borges writes, he met Don Raven in a pub back in London and said to him these or similar words. That or similar just leaps out at me because there's no real Unwin talking. <laughs> Unwin is going to say whatever Borges tells him to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why throw that in?
1: To give uh, to give a sense of authenticity, um, um, to give. Um, to say to the readers, this is so real that if one or two words are different, please excuse me, we may not have recorded this um, uh, accurately, Uh, which lends a a power of uh, truth to the story. Uh, um, Of course, it's rhetorical, and no Borges reader would confuse that, oh yeah, what a scholarly uh, attitude. Of course, it is a little trick, but we get it, and I like it, that, <laughs> <laughs> that we get the trick that, of course, this is not fussiness. It is um, mock fussiness. Or, right, yes. mm-hmm.
0: yeah. You have the other moment where um, where Anwen says, you know, it's all lies. What you've told me is lies. And he sa- and then he, Dunraven says, no, it's absolutely true. I was here. I saw it. And he says, well, the facts are, are factual, But there's also lies. And that's, you know, an interesting theme right now (laughs) in our Um, lives.
1: (laughs) Borges, um, like many writers, enjoyed um, going around the line between fact and fiction. I wonder what he would have said uh, when um, absolute truth is disappearing. Everyone has his or her digital truth. Um, um, he would be cra- uh, cracking joke endlessly, and perhaps would be upset about the fact that there is not a center anymore. Something like that. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but he also thought about labyrinths where there is no center, or he had also image of the world as a place where there is no center.
0: Yeah, uh, where where it's all babble. You know, he even refers to, to? Uh, Albuquerque yes. as mm-hmm. the king of babble. Yes. Do you think we walk away from this story? with something more than a mystery solved, a, we, a puzzle solved? First of solved.
1: all, um, every author has his or her seasons. Now, we are not in the season of discovery of Borges. We are sending, uh, this is a homage to Borges. He has achieved so much. I have learned so much from him, not only me, my generation of writers, American postmodern literature From Don Lillo to Thomas Pinchon learned so much from Borges. When we read a Borges story again, not only we are um, refreshing our memories, we are also sending um, uh, him our respects that he made it possible for us to see our lives in a different way than flat 19th century realism. And we are very grateful to him for giving us a new vision of fiction.
0: Well, thank you so much, Orhan.
1: I enjoyed talking to you.
0: Jorge Luis Borges, who died in 1986, was an Argentine short story writer, essayist, poet, and translator. His works translated into English include Labyrinths, The Aleph and Other Stories, The Book of Sand and Shakespeare's Memory, and Collected Fictions. Orhan Pamuk's novels include Snow, My Name is Red, and The Museum of Innocence. He has also published several books of nonfiction, including Istanbul, Memories in the City, and Other Colors. He is the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature, the International Dublin Literary Award, the Norman Mailer Prize, and many other awards. You can download more than 130 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Orhan Pamuk reads Vladimir Nabokov's My Russian Education, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcasts section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.